Thank you, Casey. Good morning again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me not to John's Gospel this morning. We'll be, Lord willing, back there and in foreseeable weeks next week. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where I want us to consider the issue of our weakness, but God's strength. Because sometimes I think we get the idea that church and ministry and godliness and salvation really depends on us. Even when we have good theology, even when we have big God theology as we love to call it, sometimes we get the idea that if things don't look strong, then they're not strong. And so I want us to kind of burst the bubble of that illusion today as Paul, Paul does that for us here in 2 Corinthians 12. So let's stand and honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 12, 1, verses 1 to 10. Let us hear now the word of the living God. Where Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except, and underline this, in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There it is, right there. There's the thesis right there. My grace is sufficient for you, God says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, and get this, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, this is your word. Give me grace now by your, the strength you provide in my weakness, in spite of my weakness, Father, make it plain. Give me grace to make it plain, and by your power, grant me the unction of your Holy Spirit to preach your word faithfully, and I pray that you would do in us what you alone can do, Lord, and that is build your church in us and through us that the gates of hell might not overcome it. So, Father, be with us now, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Well... How does a church grow strong? It's not the first time I've asked you this question. It shall not be the last time, I trust, that I ask you this question. This has been a bit of a topic of discussion among us recently, and rightly so. How does it grow strong? Well, I'm going to use this illustration. Some of you have heard it before, but I guess I just can't get over it. Okay, so here it is. According to the power team, you know the power team. We haven't had them here yet. Feats of human strength and displays of martial arts will make a church strong. It'll put some spiritual muscle in your congregation. It says so right there on their website. They say this. See your church grow 20% in five days as a result of a power team crusade. Our strength will inspire your church to greater faith in Christ. So weightlifting to the glory of God, right? Who's not, who's not up for that, <laughs> right? Maybe add a little batting practice, you know, like baseball. Churches typically average 15 to 25% growth within two weeks following a power team crusade and continue to see accelerated growth for up to 18 months. The advantage of a power team crusade or the typical local church evangelism, <laughs> I like that, the advantage, is that the unchurched are drawn in by the strong recognition of the power team name. Of course, all the unbelievers have heard of the power team, right? Hmm. We now have endorsements from over 100 governors, civic leaders, and senators who know us from the newspaper, the media coverage of our school assemblies, 
The unique feats of strength and positive messages have won the hearts of the community and political leaders around the country. Imagine, and this is in all caps, imagine, don't miss it, in five nights, five nights, you can win the heart of your community. So in five nights, see what's over there at Southeast Christian? It'll be over here if the power team has its way, right? In five nights, you can win the heart of your community, touch every family, and grow your church by 20%. Strength indeed. Strong, isn't it? We want to grow Christ fellowship? Well, there you go. There you have it. Just bring in the weightlifters, right? It's strong. Or is it? Is it? Now, this is kind of silly, but this is where a lot of evangelicals are. And again, we can laugh at this, but I would argue that we can begin to think this way, not in terms of the power team, okay? Not something so silly and crass as that. We can start to think, though, that maybe something that is not quite as big and robust as the world sees it is maybe just weak and hopeless. Strength. Or is it strength? Is that the kind of strength Paul finds, we find in the text this morning? Let's get our bearings. We've jumped into this. We'll come back to the power team later, but just keep that in your mind. This, again, this is how a lot of evangelicals see church and church growth, okay? But here in chapter 12, Paul is concluding his second letter to the church at Corinth. And in this section, and since really the beginning of back in chapter 10, he's defending his ministry against a group of super apostles, of weightlifters, spiritual weightlifters, right, okay? They've come in, they've come into the church, infiltrated the church, they're preaching a gospel, a false gospel. And apparently, like the power team, they're drawing quite a crowd. This is, the power team is nothing new, right? They just get their ideas from the super apostles. But they're drawing quite a crowd, it seems. Paul's devoted much of this letter to the defense of his ministry, and he sarcastically calls them the super apostles. You've got to love that. For their polished rhetorical abilities, their super communicators. Paul wrote this letter from Macedonia sometime around A.D. 55 to 56 in the midst of his third missionary journey. And here is contrasting the alleged strength of the super apostles with the alleged weakness of his own ministry, of his own calling. It looks, it looks pathetic and it looks weak, Paul's ministry does, and the super apostles, well, they're looking pretty strong. And here's what Paul's attempting to teach us. That is really, I think it's hard for us, especially in 21st century United States, in the sort of, well, I'll call it the marginal south here, I don't offend my northern, my southern friends or my Midwestern friends, but is Louisville the South? We won't debate that this morning. But it's something that we, we need to hear, I think, here in where we are, kind of the, the fringe, at least, of the, of the Bible Belt. He's teaching us that things are not always, in God's economy, things are not always as they seem. This is one of those redemptive reversals. Remember, we looked at God's providence last year in that series, uh, 15 sermon series, and I said, we're going to see a lot of redemptive reversals. And I tried to show you how the weak things are usually strong. Well, this is kind of Paul just summarizing that whole teaching. You say, why didn't you just do that? Instead of 15 sermons, well, because we've got to talk about the Bible, right? We want to talk about the Bible. It's all over the place. That's what I'm trying to show you. And this is also the, the thesis, really, the entire letter of 2 Corinthians, and prevalent theme in, in 1 Corinthians as well. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, remember he wrote, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. But it's a lesson that fallen humanity, infatuated by our own ingenuity, our own affluence, our own free will, our own moral capabilities, it's something we do not learn easily. And yet Scripture puts it, this at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of understanding the Christian life, the gospel-centered life, and right, right there, that's right at the heart. And Paul teaches us in the text this morning, I want to set it forth in sort of three movements here, okay, so we're going to move to solution. First, we see the problem here in the first six verses. And I'll summarize it this way, pride is the chief enemy of every Christian. Your chief enemy is pride. That's your besetting sin. I know it is because it's my besetting sin. And the Bible talks about it ad nauseum. Now we see the vision here. Paul's tempted <clears throat> to be proud, tempted to boast in his flesh, in his, his accomplishments, in this vision, this revelation. Paul's competitors, these super apostles, so-called, have been boasting in their remarkable spiritual experiences. And I mean, we may have had 
these tremendous spiritual experiences. I've had a couple of those, and we see those. They're available for your viewing pleasure, usually on the, a television station, a certain television station. But they had brought in these remarkable experiences, and now Paul is compelled to boast as well. He says in chapter 11, the apostle had just told his readers about his deep, deep sufferings, those he had incurred on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of Christ. And here, speaking in the third person, as if, I think, to deflect attention from himself, it's about Christ, not about him. And indeed, it's always the case for the faithful minister. Paul details this amazing spiritual experience. It kind of comes out of nowhere. He says, 14 years ago, you can, just, you can see, you know, Paul, you're sitting at the fireside. But let me tell you something. 14 years ago, 14 years ago in a, in a dream, or, or, or I was in the body or out of the body, I don't even really know how to, how to describe this. It strains human uh, language for me to even describe this, but, but I was taken up to the third heaven. The highest area of heaven, there's, a, there's sort of the, the sky that we have where the birds are, you know, in the clouds, and then you have sort of the, uh, the uh, outer space and then heaven. That's what he's talking about, the third level. That's kind of how the Bible sees this. He's caught up into, into paradise, he says. And he says, you know, I saw things that I can't even speak of that strain my ability to even comprehend, much less describe and so Paul in this vision, this revelation, he's brought in the very presence of God. That's what he saw. Maybe not God, but I mean, you can't see God and live, right, as human flesh, as the Old Testament teaches us. But he brought him into the very, the, the presence of God. And this vision was for Paul, no doubt, the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle of all of his post-conversion spiritual experiences. Boy, none of us has this experience, right? I don't care what you say or how many books you write about it. I don't think we really have this experience. Paul said, I'm not certain if I was in the body, out of the body, dreaming, awake. I don't even know. And we're not certain, of course, of the nature of the vision. Because Paul heard things just too wonderful for human ears to hear. He's not going to talk about it. It's, we want to know more. Man, I'd, I'd love to meet Paul. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, tell me more about that vision. Man, how did you keep from passing out? It's like one prosperity gospel preacher. He said, you know, I, I, was, I was shaving this morning and God appeared to me. He sat down on the bathtub and he talked to me. And I thought, man, you didn't cut yourself shaving at least? <laughs> the God of the universe appears, right? This must have been incredible for Paul to, to see. Too wonderful. I mean, there could be no higher honor. A human being brought into the very presence of God without first having to walk through the chilly waters of death. My brother died three weeks ago, and he's in heaven, and he's, I wondered what he saw in those first five seconds. Oh, wow, what's he seeing right now? But he didn't get there because he's lifted up to heaven. He had to go through the river of death, as Bunyan describes it in the Pilgrim's Progress. I love that description. I use that at his, his, his funeral because that's a beautiful picture of what we walk through to get to the celestial city, I think. It's dark and murky, and we don't know, but we, we have to get there, but not Paul. And Paul, he assesses it. What does he say? Just when we're leaning forward and saying, tell me more, he says, but I'm not going to boast in it. That's all you got to say, Paul? I'm not going to boast in it. I'm not going to boast in it. I mean, Paul has every right. He even tells us here, I have every right to talk about it because it's true. I'm not, this is not a, you know, a cock and bull story. I'm not making this up. This is not like, you know, you caught a six-inch fish, I caught a 12-inch. It's not a big fish story, which is one of those in the Bible that's true too, isn't it? Is it there? He says, no, I could talk about it because it's true, and it probably would add something important to his spiritual resume, especially when you're slapping leather with these super apostles, you need all the help you can get, right, to, to, to convince your congregation that really I'm as good as they are. That's never really changed, by the way, <laughs> even our reformed circles. Got to convince them, there's too, oh, a lot of spiritual heroes out there. Never really, it's never really changed, has it? But he won't boast in it. What does he boast in? Look at verse 5. This is where we start to think, is Paul nuts? Verse 5, he says, On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of what? I'll boast of my weaknesses. Hmm. I'll boast of my weaknesses. But we might ask, if Paul cannot provide his readers the details of the vision, then why did the Holy Spirit reveal it as part of Scripture? Because we want to know more. Well, and why did Paul say it's weakness? That, that's the whole point of this. I think it's because it exposed a sinful temptation in Paul. Because, you know, in every text, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, in every text, as one, like Brian Chappell puts it in a fabulous preaching book, there's a fallen condition that every text seeks to address in us. 
And that's a good question to ask yourself. What is the fallenness, the sin in me that this is seeking to, God is seeking to address through this word? There, there's a temptation that this is addressing in Paul. And, and it's a universal temptation. It's pride. He's addressing Paul's pride directly with uh, allowing him to go up there, but I'm not going to boast in it. I mean, even we in the church are tempted by pride to, to upsize our own strength, our own power, and even ever so subtly downsize God's glory. It's why Isaiah told us God will share his glory with no flesh, with no man, right? Human pride is tempted to boast in, in 10,000 different things at any given moment, I believe. I think it's true in my heart. We can boast in our religious experiences, all of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the super apostles. We can boast in our superior theological knowledge, all uh, those of us who, who uh, are affiliated with the seminary. Say, boy, I know, I know good theology. We should know good theology, right? But we can boast in it. We can boast in our advanced academic degrees, you know. I always love it when I call people and they, say, they correct you and say, no, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Say, Dr. No, <laughs> Dr. Pepper, Dr. Whatever, right? We can do that. I can, I can be attempted to do the same. Or our lack of academic degrees. I just don't get into all that theology stuff. I don't really like to, I'm just none of that. We can boast in that, can't we? Our, boast in our ignorance. I, I've heard that lots. You probably have too. may have done it a time or two. We can boast in our middle class affluence. We're middle class people. We can really take pride in that. But we forget when we boast in anything except Christ, that we were not the ones that put ourselves in these circumstances. It was God, it was God who in his sovereign mercy saw to it that you were born into that family, in that place, in those circumstances, whether good or bad in your mind. That we were born in certain countries, in certain regions, that he's provided everything we have. It's so easy for us to moment to moment forget about that. That moment to moment we're sustained, we're kept, we're provided for by God. This sovereign God. In admiring and loving and cherishing his largeness, we forget our smallness. And the small things he does for us. And all the big things, the spiritual Super Bowls we have, you know, victories. And then the, and the small things. God is there. He's provided. He puts you there. If he puts you in a bad situation, he puts you there. Or again, a situation as you uh, reason it to be bad or negative. I mean, churches, we can boast of our attendance in our big facilities or our small facilities. We can get a martyr complex and say, well, we're just small because we got the truth. That's throughout church history. You see that. We're, we're small because nobody can take the truth. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> and the churches that say that typically don't last a whole a long time. We can't boast on that either. Some martyr complex, can we? That we, we develop our denominational strength. and say we're SBC. Pretty sure the world kind of looks at that right now and goes, eh, I don't know if I'd be too proud of that. We can boast in ties to important political or sports personalities. I remember one time. We lived in Birmingham. There's a church not far from us, and they were big, and man, they just got bigger and bigger. And they had Miss Alabama. I was going to preach on Sunday morning, evidently. Southern Baptist Church. She wasn't preaching, she's speaking. Big difference, evidently, in this mind. And man, I remember getting in traffic that morning, <laughs> thinking, we, I'm trying to get to my church. It doesn't have Mrs. Alabama. She'd never even go to my church, probably. And so, but they had a, a big crowd. You can draw a crowd, can't we? We could draw a crowd if we had to. We wanted to do that. If that were the name of the game, right? We can boast these things, and we see them as strong because the world sees them as strong. Again, we can be large or we can be small, and we can be prideful in both of those things. So I'm in no way, by no means, knocking large churches. Praise God that ministry of large churches uh, have ministered to many of us and are wonderful, but small churches too. We can, but we can tend to say, well, you've got you know, less than 100 members, you're not doing much. When 90% of the churches in America own Southern Baptist Convention, I think is 90, is that right? Am I right? What's the, it's a large percentage, right? Or under 100 members, Doug, right? <laughs> Big, large percentage. But the world calls these things strong. And this is why Scripture has so many warnings about the deadly disease of pride. To paraphrase the great Puritan John Owen, we must be killing pride or it will kill us as a church and as individual Christians. We must be busy about that every single day. But God in his mercy and his love toward us provides divine assistance in slaying this soul-killing monster. 
Which brings me to my second point. See the progression here. The solution. You have the problem? Pride. The solution? God humbles his children through suffering. Verses 7 and 8. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations. And man, how great those were, right? A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to what? To harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with God about this, that it should leave me. So God humbles his children through suffering. It's an expression of God's love. It was for Paul, right? It is for us. Now people can fixate on the thorn here. Usually when we're teaching this, like, can you tell us, you know, you talk about this strength and weakness. So what's the thorn? <laughs> and here's the answer. We don't know. And that's really not the point. It's probably a physical malady. Some people say, well, it's the super apostles. It's his inner psychological troubles. There's been a whole, there's a book, a book written on why this is the inner psychological troubles of Paul. I'm not going to read that book. It's all speculation. You can read it if you want to. And read, read Pilgrim's Progress. Read something else. Others said it's a physical malady, his vision maybe. He talks about plucking out his eyeballs in Galatians. It could be. I think it's probably something physical. I mean, just my guess that if you want to know what I think, because it's in his flesh. Sarkos, in his flesh. It's in his flesh. So I think it's probably, but it doesn't matter. It was given, the ESV translates it to harass. King James translates it to buffet. To buffet, like you're buffeted by the waves, not Jimmy Buffett, but you're buffeted by the waves, right? We're not paradise here, but you're buffeted by the waves like that. And uh, in the New American Standard Bible, it's torment or batter, or battered, tormented. Paul's suffering was ongoing and perennial. It was battering him, torturing him. I mean, some of you are tortured by anxiety and, and, and panic attacks. And, I mean, and I've been there, too, in depression and, and, and physical pain. Many of you suffer. It's perennial. It's ongoing. It's lifelong, maybe. And God has put a thorn in your flesh, and he's not removed it. And you've prayed about it, he's still not removed it. So far, his answer has been no. I mean, the most striking thing here, Paul clearly implies that God has given him. He said, the thorn was given to me. A messenger of Satan, but the devil didn't do it, right? I think God did it. Because at the same time, he calls it a messenger of Satan. Well, which is it? Well, it's both, isn't it? I mean, Satan is God's devil, right? That's what Luther called him. That's right. He's a lion. Luther's out on a leash, and God reigns him in, gives him slack as he sees fit. We see that in the book of Job. Because who's in charge in Job? Is it the devil? No, it's God. God says, you can touch Job, and you can strike him with boils, and you can hurt him, but you may not kill him. That's it. God sets the rules. He's God's devil. He's a creative being, right? So he, even Satan's evil workings, God uses to accomplish his good purposes, particularly in the lives of his people. I think we stress sometimes, well, can Christians be demon-possessed? And uh, well, I don't think we need to worry about that. I don't think so, but I mean, we're, we're harassed. <laughs> and sometimes it's for our good, or always for our good, our sanctification, and for us to, to cling to God. So Satan brings a thorn to Paul's flesh, a flesh, presumably to inflict misery on him, and to cause him to doubt God's goodness. Where have we heard this before? Well... Garden of Eden, right? Has God really said, doubt God's goodness? I mean, Satan's always, he's trying to get you probably this morning to doubt God's goodness. Because God won't let you have some sin that you want to commit. Calls it a sin. Oh, I don't think he's good. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have any fun. But he is, even if it's from Satan, I mean, Spurgeon said he's God's shill. I mean, God, his sovereignty rules over the wiles of Satan. God sets the parameters. But it's for your good. I mean, this thorn becomes the very means by which Paul is preserved from pride and is the vehicle, the, the means by which the power of Christ dwells on him. That's the means. It's the suffering that God uses to cause his power to dwell on Paul. Why was Paul so powerful? Such a powerful preacher of God's word, such a spirit anointed because of suffering, I would argue. Because of what he says in 2 Corinthians. That's why. He suffered and he continued to trust God. He persevered in the faith. And he's a powerful illustration of the gospel itself, isn't he? Because that's at the heart of the gospel. He gave him the thorn, verse 7 says, to keep me from becoming conceited. To keep me from becoming lifted up in, in pride. So God humbles us through suffering in love. If you're suffering and you're clinging to Christ, it's God's love toward you. And maybe it is to eradicate some sin. God's not let you, you got caught in sin. 
That's God's love toward you. He doesn't let you just continue in sin as he would an unbeliever, right? He loves you enough to reel you back in. And you get caught and you repent and you're redeemed and you're restored and that's God's love for you. Just like a parent. We catch our children with the cans and the proverbial cookie jar. What do we do? Well, we, we discipline and we love them enough to say, hey, this is, put you on the right path here, the path toward Christ. And the God does the same for us as a, a loving father. And you say, well, it doesn't seem loving at the time. And it doesn't, but it is loving. This is part of the Christian love. Ministry, I mean, Paul commends his ministry not in power, but in weakness. Turn back to chapter, look back chapter 11, just the first the page before this. Look what he says about his ministry. This is what he commends. Verse 22. He says, are they, he's speaking of the, let me go back, back to 21b. But whoever anyone, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And he's speaking of the super apostles here. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. They were Jewish, obviously. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. We'll stack our credentials right beside each other. Super apostles, credentials on one side, Paul's on the other. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, Paul said. And I'm talking like a madman. Why does he say that? Well, he's going to stay tuned. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That's 39, if you can do math. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And the pastor, Paul says, apart from these things, it gets worse. There's a daily pressure of me on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? What does he boast in? What is his resume? It's this incredible suffering. He's survived by God's grace. The Christian is called to suffer. It's part of our vocation, part of our, our job. That's why God gave him this thorn. First, Second Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And boy, he says, and how? You see, he's got the chops to say that. He's got the street cred to say that, doesn't he? Because he's been there and done that. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must come into the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. And boy, we don't like that, do we? You must enter the kingdom of God. There is no crown without a cross. That's all the New Testament. And it's the Old Testament. I mean, God is a father who always gives good things to his children. I mean, Psalm 23, the psalm we you know, read rightly at funerals, says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's a promise. You say, boy, it doesn't feel like goodness, and God feels really distant right now. He's there, and he's doing something in you. And it's hard for you to have the eyes to see it. Just pray for eyes to see it. He's doing, he's keeping you, he's killing your pride at the very least. Like John Bunyan said, the, the true Christian is like a great bell. The harder you strike him, the more clearly he rings. That's to be us. That's to be you, Is to be me. All who name, claim the name of Christ in ministry. John Newton famously said, God bears the minister a double grudge. They're a Christian, he's against them on that level. And they're a minister of the gospel, he's against them on that level. You're going to ministry, and some of you, that, that describes some of you here, it's going to be hard. It's going to be glorious at times, and it's going to be hard at times. And if you can't take the hard, then I would go find something else to do right now, if I were you. It's tough. It's hard to stay encouraged. You know, it's hard. Paul's, I go back to 2 Corinthians 11 a lot and say, it's supposed to be hard. This is normal. This is right. <laughs> Not that we're sadists, but it is. It's glorious too. You see, you know, sometimes you get, you, know, you get, you see God do great things and transform people. It's almost like being called up to the third heaven, right? It's glorious, but not always because there's thorns. But what else do you want to give your life to? As John Piper put it, you want to waste your life on shuffleboard? I mean, what do we want to do with our lives, guys, right? 
We talk about this at the seminary all the time, and indeed it's true. What, what, what you come into your life, what do you want? He's a great shuffleboard player, man, he knew how to hit that one or whatever it is. No, 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 we want to, we just lay ourselves out. And that's in this church too. Okay, we're a place of struggle a little bit now, but we're not going to quit. It's supposed to be this way. My dad used to say, he was in the 101st Airborne, he used to laugh and say, you're surrounded. He said, we're supposed to be surrounded. And that's us. We're the church. We're supposed to be surrounded. We, we wrestle not with, with flesh and blood, do we? We're, we're surrounded, but that's the way it's supposed to be. In your personal life, it may be that way too. He said, well, is it okay for us to pray that God would maybe take us out of this surfing? I've had it enough. I joked with Doug one time. I said, you know, God's never tempted me with being a really wealthy man. Sometimes I'd like to try. Just, I think I need sanctification in that area, right? But God knows all we need, doesn't he? He doesn't tempt me of that. A lot of money. <laughs> I'll have to try that for about a week. No, God doesn't want to choose, does he? Paul didn't choose the thorn, but God chose it for him to slay his pride. Is it all right to pray that God removes our suffering? It is. He prayed three times and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to see you through this and make you a trophy of my grace. You're going to write about this and the world's going to see it. And for generations, for millennia, this is going to encourage struggling Christians who, sons and daughters who go through, walk through this discipline of mine. And indeed, this morning, I hope this is encouraging you. I want this to encourage you, not discourage you. That's my intent. There was a lot of bad stuff in here, at least um, humanly speaking. So it is okay to pray. But God may not remove the thorn. And it's wrong for us to claim that he does. I claim it. Well, just you can claim it all you want to. It's up to God. It's his will, right? So my third point, so you see the, you see the, out, the problem and you see the solution, now the outcome. What's the outcome of these providentially placed thorns? Well, here it is. Christ's power is displayed in human weakness, verse 5 and 9 and 10. Roy read verse 5, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that with the result that the power of God, the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the result. That's the outcome. And then he gets really crazy. I think about how this must sound to the, the world. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content. He's content. Am I content because I've got a full bank account or I've got living in the, a gated community or I'm content because I'm, I'm safe right now? I have safety. I'm healthy and wealthy and wise? No. He says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm content in those things. We tend to be content when we've got a lot of money in the bank, right? And I know I do. That really makes me sleep better at night. I'll admit it. My wife, family's over here going, that's exactly right. He's in a better mood at payday. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Insults, hardships, weakness, content. He's content in these things. He prayed in Philippians that God would teach him how to be content. Well, there you go. <laughs> he's, he's learned the secret. Teach me the secret of contentment. Well, there it is. Paul finds his true strength in what? In weakness. This is the gospel paradox. This is it. This is what the gospel paradox in my title. I mean, what is the weakness of which he speaks? It is, it's not his sinful or imperfect behaviors. It's not a weakness or lust or gluttony or something like that or bad choices. He fleshes it out in verse 10. That's, that's his weakness. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with these insults, hardships, persecutions. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. The power team, there's, there's, <laughs> there's strength the power team knows not of, it turns out. In Scripture, I'm not picking on the power team. I'm sure they're fine. It's a good illustration, though, of how we think. Insults. He starts, insults, that's when you're mocked for being a Christian. I'm content with that. You like that? And we start to get, we, we get angry, don't we? I mean, if you're following Christ, don't expect the world to embrace you. I'm, I'm amused how we expect the world just to think, oh, it's wonderful. They're just wonderful. You're brilliant and you love your ideas, love your Jesus. They don't love our Jesus. They love a Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me, but not the Jesus of Scripture, right? Jesus, in John 15, we'll get to in a few weeks and a few months probably, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, Jesus said. So we should expect this. So insults, hardships, 
difficult circumstances that come upon you from out of the blue. Persecutions. Now, this is going to come closer to home in, in the United States soon. I think it is now. This is acts of prejudice from others who despise you for your Christian convictions. For example, when you say the LGBTQ movement is sinful and demonic, and I will say that this morning on the authority of Scripture. But when you say that, and that is easy for me to say that here, that doesn't require a whole lot of courage because most of you agree, or all of you probably agree, but out there you say that and you're going to get hammered. They're going to think you're a fruitcake, that you're a nut. And if you don't believe me, just say it sometime. They're, they're going to think you're crazy. You're out of step with the culture, that you're on the wrong side of history. They'll just say that. That's got a veneer of academia about it. Jesus was on the wrong side of history, even though A.D. and B.C., we measure history by his <laughs> appearing, right? Or you oppose the Black Lives Matter organization. Organization, not the phrase. Say, so, you know, I think they've got some problems. Try that one. Call it every name of the book. Things like that. Just, just, and those are just conversations and once in this country we could have over the fence, right? Not anymore. They'll tear the fence down and tear you up. I've had them in my neighborhood. <laughs> Not the most popular guy on my block. Not because I have a sign hanging out or being pugnacious. Now, we don't want to be that way, of course, with gentleness and respect. We talked about that two weeks ago, sharing the gospel. Be ready to give an account with gentleness and respect. Lovingly, but lovingly, you say it lovingly, it's not going to matter. You're going to be persecuted. We're going to go through that. Maybe before in my time left on earth, if God gives me 20, 30 more years, I think I'll be persecuted for my faith. I think you will be too. We'll know who the men and the boys are. It'll separate the, wheat, the sheep from the goats pretty soon, I think. I mean, I don't know when, but I can sense it. It's different out there now. Calamities. It's translated sometimes distresses, difficulties, troubles, ideas, pressure that threatens to crush you or push you down, that causes you anxiety and tension. He says, "Those I'm going to boast in that because, because I, I see the strength in my, the very notion of my persevering through them. God's doing it. Are you here through perseverance and anxiety this morning? God did it. He brought you here. He did it. He did it. You say, why is it necessary to, to highlight human weakness? Because God's power is seen clearly in his weak people, and that includes his weak ministers. If you go to seminary and get a bunch of degrees by your name, don't forget that. In fact, you better remember that. If you don't, God will remind you of that. I can tell you about that, all about it. You're weak. You're weak. But in that weakness, our strength is made perfect. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, Paul says. Wow. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect. His grace is sufficient for you. Do you see that? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? When we struggle here at Christ Fellowship, His grace is sufficient for us. We have everything we need. You say, well, people leave. Well, we don't need them. I'm just going to be blunt. You can tell them, I don't care. We have God's grace. You don't need me. If I, if I do the same, you don't need me either. You have God's grace. You don't need me. I, I put myself in the same boat. This church is not dependent on me or Doug or Clay. It's dependent on the grace of Christ. That's it. That's it. It's what we need, right? We got everything we need. Because the weak man is a strong man. I mean, the, the paradox of the gospel is utterly counterculture. When we're weak, we're strong. I'm not suggesting only the small churches are faithful. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying when you go through a time and you can't explain, you're perplexed as we have been of late over some things, you, you just have to understand that God's grace is sufficient for us. It's where you plant your feet and stand and you will stand there. It's all we got, but it's all we need. The weak man is the strong man, Paul's saying, and God's power and character are manifested through us as churches. We learn more and more to rely on his strength and our very weakness and his grace. Mark Dever said, what is God's greatest argument to the world that he alone is God? It is us, his church. It is faithful Christians everywhere who gather to hear his word preached and who live by the power of the Spirit. God reveals his truth about himself, his power, his strength through us, his weak church. The world sees that and they wonder what's going on in there. Why are those people sitting there listening to that book that's 10,000, 6,000 years old? Why would you do that? Because of the power of God brought us here. How God saved you and drew you here, and you're not here by accident. And the world will never understand that. The world should never, ever, ever be able to understand the church. 
how people from every background, how black people and white people and Hispanic people and Asian people and Indian people and tall people and short people and fat people and skinny people and rich people and poor people and Georgia fans and Florida fans and Tennessee fans and Auburn fans and Alabama fans, yes, and Kentucky fans and L fans, they can come together and love one another and work for God's kingdom. They should never be able to understand that. Can you understand why I'm a Georgia fan? Well, yeah, you went there and you're from that place. But you can't understand why I'm here. The world can explain that kind of thing, right? Or why I'm in the, you know, the Kiwanis Club. Here, they can't understand this. They think, what is happening in there? We're weak and we need God and his powers made manifest in us. Whether we are 15 or 1,500. And we absolutely have to get that in our heads. And that has to be our mindset. This is why unprincipled pragmatism, which is so prevalent in modern-day churches, is so troubling and dangerous and even deadly. When we substitute powerlifting teams and my ministries, yes, I said my ministries. I heard of that one time. I, they told, a church told me they had a vibrant mime ministry, trapping themselves in invisible boxes, the glory of God, evidently. When we substitute though those things, whatever they are, for God's word, or even the flashiness of the super apostles, for the foolishness of preaching, we substitute for the foolishness of preaching God's word. We're not really operating in a power of strength, but we're operating in a, power, in, a, in a position of weakness when it's anything else. And yes, we're tempted to do those things. We're tempted to give away a Harley Davidson on Sunday morning, draw the people in. I know, I get it. That's weakness. God doesn't need it. He doesn't need your giveaway. He doesn't need my giveaway. He doesn't need it, does he? he we've got the grace of God. It's what we need, and we have it. Because God will share his glory with no man. Paul knew this well. And this is true for individual believers, not just our church. It's for, true for all of us, each one of us. When we rely on God and God shows himself faithful, he gets the glory. I mean, the advance of Paul's own mission, the progress of the gospel occurred through and on the back of his suffering. Not, not his super apost, ap, apostolic ministry, being a super apostle. No, his suffering. I mean, Paul could rejoice in his weakness because he understood that this very weakness by, was the means by which the powerful word of the cross, the word of Jesus Christ, affects people's lives. And that's what we're here to proclaim this very morning and every Sunday morning. And we see it in our lives. We see it in this congregation, don't we? His very ministry, Paul's very ministry, was a living illustration of the power of the cross, which to the unregenerate heart looks altogether pathetic. Looks pathetic, doesn't it? The, the Christian faith looks pathetic to the unregenerate heart. But God does not intend for us to be strong, self-reliant, without need of turning to Him. That's the whole point, isn't it? That's a prideful position. When we are strong, we rob God of the opportunity to supply, to supply for God to supply our needs and to bring glory to Himself. I mean, brothers and sisters, we are not the power team. The triune God is. He teaches us by suffering to trust him more and he uses adversity to humble and to sanctify us. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing now and he'll be doing that a year from now and five years from now, no matter what happens. He'll be humbling us and sanctifying us, working in us to make us like Jesus and that is, that's the, the greatest thing he could ever do for us, right? I mean, no matter what you're going through, his grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you or a loved one, you've gotten a, a diagnosis, of, of medical diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. Or someone you know or love has. Well, Christ's grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you've lost your job. Your family has no means of support. Christ's grace is sufficient for you. Or maybe you pray for decades for a lost loved one. They're still just as hard-hearted toward the gospel and the things of God as ever. Christ's grace is sufficient for you. Keep praying. And maybe one of your children is living in open rebellion against the very gospel you worked so hard to teach them to, to implant as much as you could in their hearts growing up. Your, his grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're going through a time where God just feels far away. He doesn't feel close to me. If you're near to me now, his grace is sufficient for you. 
And maybe you just recently graduated from seminary and man, nobody's hiring you. You've sent out resume after resume. God's teaching you something. You're not sure why. Probably patience in this. But His grace is sufficient for you. I mean, maybe you look at our church and you're tempted to say, well, this is just kind of dying. What are we going to do? Wringing hands? Beloved, Christ's grace is sufficient for Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. And Southeast Christian Church and Third Avenue Church and Reformed Baptists of Louisville and all of our friends, and we're thankful for all of them. This is not a this is not a sermon about the size of our churches, okay? This has really nothing to do with that so much as it is how we see God's work in our lives and in our church. Because God uses all kinds of different means. Praise God. Aren't you glad he does? Aren't you glad he uses even you? 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he said, we have this gospel. Paul, earlier in this epistle. We have this, God, this, this treasure, which is the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you're going to ministry, you need to know that the 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 self-sufficient, cocky, upwardly mobile preacher with the big, you know, has the, all the books out and he's at the conferences and I have many friends who do this and they're wonderful and godly. I'm not talking about them, but, may, but he's, this guy, he just is all about him. He's really the weak preacher. And maybe you don't have that ministry or don't, aren't going to ever have that ministry, but really that guy's the weak preacher. I don't mean the guy who's godly, who pastors the big church. I mean someone who's just full of themselves, right? You see that? It's kind of like... The donkey Jesus rode into Jerusalem thinking all those hand claps and all that praise was for him. When we as ministers get puffed up, that's what it is. We're the donkey thinking, hey, look at this. This is great. No, it's not about us. Because human power and affluence, they tend to be like salt water. The more we drink of it, the more we thirst for it. It just makes us thirsty. We can never get enough. The thirstier we get. This is how the super apostles thought. But God made certain his true servant, Paul, would have his pride laid low so that the power of God would rest on him. Pray, beloved, pray like you've never prayed before that God will grant you humility, will grant the leaders of this church humility, even if it takes a providentially placed thorn. And maybe we get those, and maybe we got one of those, but we need to be thankful for it. That God's not letting us go in some other direction that will eventually shipwreck our faith. He loves us that much. I mean, think about it as we close. God's always worked this way all through the Bible. I mean, God did not glorify himself by calling a fruitful patriarch of a large family to be the sort of the founder, the progenitor of his people. He called barren old Sarah and Abraham, and that looked really pathetic, right? You can't have a baby. And God said, you're going to be more numerous than all the peoples of the earth, and people are going to come to you, and, and, <laughs> and here we are today. Children, sons, and daughters of Abraham, right here. I'm looking at you. You are. You're beautiful. Because God has kept his promise. He always does, right? But he began a very weak place. God did not call the mighty Egyptian nation. The Egyptians were unparalleled in their military might in those days, in ancient times. God didn't call them to be his people. He didn't choose them. He chose their slaves. You think, why did he do that? I mean, look at the young men whom Jesus called his disciples. I just read a wonderful book by John MacArthur. I've been wondering a few years on 12 Ordinary Men. Read that book. It's wonderful. Especially we're going through John. These, these apostles, they weren't much to look at, were they? Fishermen, tax collectors, which was the scourge of humanity. It's like the, you know, the ambulance chasing attorneys, how they would have been seen back then. That's who he called to be his disciples. Boy, they look like a ragtag group of ragamuffins. And indeed they were. Ordinary men, obscure. Nobody knew them. They weren't famous. They weren't, the, they weren't speaking at the conferences, were they? And look what God did through them. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. We always end up at the cross, don't we? Always, always, always. God's power at Calvary reveals the strength being displayed in the most powerful way in human history, the strength being displayed in weakness. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, just the next chapter over, he says, for he was crucified, Jesus, crucified in weakness. But he lives by the power of God, for we are also weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Crucified in weakness, raised from the dead, seated on the throne of the universe, coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's our Savior. You see the gospel paradox here? The cross of Christ, what appeared to be pathetic and of no account in a crucified corpse was in reality the resurrection and the life. God uses weak people like us and weak means like our church and every church by the way. This is every true Christian, large church, small church, mature believer, maturing believer. He uses what appears to be weak to accomplish his purposes. He puts us in difficult situations and difficult seasons in our personal lives and our church lives and other times to slay our pride so that we don't get puffed up and say, look, look, I've done something here. I've seen something. And he will get all the glory. A Christian's greatest spiritual breakthrough comes not through power encounters with God, but through the most harrowing experiences in life. Paul did not reach the spiritual pinnacle through being lifted up to the third heaven. It was in the humility that followed the thorn. And Paul was absolutely dependent upon the Lord and he knew it. So must you and so must we. Our words must be those of 17th century pastor William Gouge, Puritan. He wrote this. And I close with this. When I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. When I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. Fullness and sufficiency in Him. Weakness and nothingness in us. May God grant us mercy and grace to catch that vision. Let's pray. Father, we are weak and we feel our weakness like at no time in recent history. But you are strong and we ask that you would make us strong in your weakness to persevere in, by your grace to live every moment in this church and in our personal lives for your glory to see what you're doing, to see that it is through the emptying of ourselves that you fill us up with your spirit and with godliness. Oh, Father, grant us persevering grace. Give a, let us leave here today not, not simmering that, oh, no, we're going to suffer, but joyful that we were privileged to suffer for Jesus' sake and that we have the privilege of being a part of his church, chosen before the foundation of the world, the privilege of being part of the gospel ministry that calls those who walk in darkness to the great light of Jesus Christ. And may we be busy about that and not distracted by our apparent weakness, knowing full well that when we're weak, like Paul, we are strong. Oh God, do it in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.